Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Like I said a little earlier, I've been gone a lot lately. And um, I don't normally like to stack my ministry travel so close together, but it just happened this way. And praise God for my wife. What a warrior. She was watching four kids doing her job, and she moved our entire household with me in another place. And so I'm, I'm wrestling with guilt <laughs> because I made my wife move our whole house by herself. Um, <clears throat> but wow, the job she did, it's amazing. And uh, I want to say thank you um, to my church because you guys free me up understanding that um, while my primary calling is here among you, there are times when I sense that God is calling me away from here to do things somewhere else. And whenever I go, the majority experience is not so much that I'm used by God, but that God shows me himself in so many different ways, ways that I think I couldn't see when I stayed at home. I mean, how many of you have traveled abroad, met people, experienced things, and you came back just feeling like your view of God and the world was bigger? And I've just interacted with people from Mongolia and Kuwait and um, all over the world, and just I'm hearing stories and seeing videos of God at work, and it is just astounding. I, I've come back with my heart really gripped by this fresh conviction that God does crazy stuff. That he's not really interested in seeing a church creep along with business as usual, but he wants to rock us and he wants to show us that his power has not faded one bit in all the time that he's made himself known to people. And I I mean, I'll tell you, I have seen things now with my own eyes that I cannot explain. And I know that God is on the march and he loves us And his power is boundless. And so I'm coming back to you in a really good mood, with a a fresh faith, and ready to dig into things here. And so I just wanted to say thank you for freeing me to have those experiences and to come back uh, really moved and touched by God. Now, I want to dig into what I think, at least based on the length of my notes, is going to be one of the shorter messages that I've preached. Praise God. You better pay attention because it's going to be a quick one. And I want you to really pay attention, because this is the first time in nearly 20 years that I've been at this church that I'm preaching out of John 3.16. And if you're not paying attention, you're going to miss the important parts. And so I want to ask you to stay with me. You know, one trait of a good teacher is that they make complex things simple. And as I read this passage with you, I want you to look at what God does here. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. 
Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. You know, I, I just got done telling you that a good teacher has the ability to take complex and deep things and make them very accessible in simple terms. Not simplistic, but to take things and in a way that everyone hearing can relate to it, to make it identifiable. And that's something that I appreciate so much about God. Now, let's admit that a lot of Christian teachers and writers, and especially professors, I'm sorry, but it's just the way it is, um, have managed to make Christianity enormously complex at times. And yes, I will agree with you, if you decide to pull out the right lens, there are complexities of this faith that you could spend a lifetime exploring. But I think one of the greatest things that that good um, Bible communicators will do is tell you the truth and not leave you wondering what they actually meant. And I love our God because when He communicates to us, He talks at our level. He talks at our level. I've realized that I can no longer preach at high school and junior high retreats. The last time I preached to high school students, I was invited by the Hmong community to preach in, I think it was Kansas City, to a stadium full of about 3,500 Hmong youth. It freaked me out, guys. I mean, because what I realized was it's been so long since I spoke at that level I had no idea how to communicate effectively with people who are struggling with teenage things. And so I've been praying ever since God helped me because I'm going to have teenagers in my house. I better learn this. But I realized that it's, it's very hard to get down to someone's level if they are at a place you left behind long ago. And I love that God communicates so simply. In fact, what God often does, He doesn't drone on and on in complex arguments, but very often He uses stories. Now, how many of you prefer, um, all right, so there's going to be some nerds out there I know, but how many of you prefer a good movie over a documentary film? Like if I said, hey, Avengers is on, let's go watch Avengers, how many of you are like, yeah, but if I said, hey, there's this great documentary on the plight of oil platform workers, in the Baltic Sea, would you like to come with me? How many of you are like, dang, I gotta, I gotta ask my wife for permission. Like, I gotta, I gotta be there for that. See, there's a way of telling a story, which makes things relevant and immediate and urgent and powerful and true to us. But it's done in a way that, without a lot of effort, I can accept it. I can receive into myself. What is being communicated? And that's why it's so powerful that God uses this motif over and over again in Scripture of light and darkness. Light and darkness. And I like Heath's illustration because it shows somebody who's right at the edge of the two, and you have to kind of make a choice, right? There's, there's light there, and there's the shadow, and you could remain in the one or step into the other, and your experience in life will be completely defined by your relationship to the shadow or to the light. It's a very helpful illustration or analogy that God uses because every one of us on a daily basis has this deep identification with the dynamics of lightness and darkness. 
You know, there's so many ways you could play out or explain this tension between light and darkness. Here, here's a couple examples I came up with. Beginnings versus endings. Think about the fact that when, when dawn breaks and, and light dawns on a new day, there's a sense that something new is beginning. But as the sun goes down, and by the way, um, Shiji, I was in L.A., and, and uh, the sun goes down just that fast in real time on the west coast of the U.S. It always surprises me how fast that thing drops. I'm looking at it, I go, oh, I'm going to get my camera. And by the time I come out, it's gone. And after the beautiful sunset, there's a bit of a dip in the way we feel because there used to be this beautiful light. You could see everything, and now all you can see is black, dark. There's sight versus blindedness. You know, we talk about being in the dark, not stumbling about in darkness. Can you imagine not ever being able to see? Can you imagine how challenging, how frustrating that would be? And so there's this immediate idea that, you know, when you turn on the lights and you can finally see things, it's such a good feeling. We just moved to a new house. Um, I haven't figured out where all the light switches are. And some of the rooms, they have no overhead lighting, so we haven't put lamps in there. And I have stubbed my toe so many times since moving because I can't see. And that doesn't help that we have stuff everywhere right now, all over the floor. And so I'm stubbing my toe all the time. It's a wonderful thing to be able to see. What about knowledge versus ignorance? We talk about someone being bright or someone being dim, right? I mean, we all want to be in the know. We want to shed a little light on the subject. And so everyone would prefer to have knowledge than to be ignorant. What about hope versus despair? Hope versus despair. We talk about light at the end of the tunnel, or we talk about our darkest hour. Do you hear the terminology, the visceral emotional reaction you get when I say, hey, light is coming, everyone goes, good. No one goes, oh, light. I don't like light. I'd rather have this darkness surround me forever. And how about finally, good versus evil. Talk about black hats and white hats. And do you notice a pattern here? The pattern is that all the things associated with light are things that without much thought, normal, healthy human beings gravitate towards. Just the same way that insects fly towards light, the human heart is also drawn to light and all of its attendant characteristics. We like the things associated with light. How many people do you know whose life goal it is to turn blind at the earliest possible age? Who love not knowing stuff? I mean, I've met a few people really proud of their ignorance. I don't know, man. I'm glad I don't know. I I don't know. And they're so happy not knowing. But most people, they get a little frustrated when everyone's talking about stuff. And you're like, what, what? I, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. I need to get educated. I want to know what the truth is. How many people love despair? And do you realize all the things on the right side of that list that represent darkness, if you love those things, nobody's going to tell you you're in great shape. How many of you tell your friend, you know, your, your love of despair and evil, it's really inspired me to explore evil myself. I just, I don't know what it is. You're always cheering for the bad guy in the movie, and it just moves my heart. See, the point is, this is such a simple and clear illustration. Nobody really needs to explain it further. Light is good. We want it, 
and dark is bad. We don't want it. That's the natural relationship that exists between light and dark. <clears throat> Excuse me. Listen to what, listen to what um, the Bible says about Jesus. The true light, which gives light to everyone, is coming into the world. Listen to what Jesus says about himself. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. These are the things the Bible says about Jesus. What Jesus says about himself is that he identifies completely with light. The things that mark darkness are things that are not found in Jesus. And the things that mark light are the things that embody who Jesus is. So much so that in 1 John 1, 5 it says, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Everything you associate with light is true of God. He is the God of new beginnings. He is the God of sight rather than blindness, of knowledge rather than ignorance. He is the God of hope and not despair. He is the God of goodness and not evil. All the things we are drawn to in the light are manifested in Jesus Christ, the person. That is the truth about Jesus, is that when Jesus came to the earth, it was like the lights came on for the human race. I don't have the slide with these verses, this verse, but in Matthew 4.16, listen to what it says about Jesus. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, light has dawned. So we know this. The simple truth is that when Jesus came... It was like the lights got turned on. Here's a, a good way to picture an, an experience you'll probably all identify with. How many of you have ever been in a blackout? <clears throat> in a blackout. So blackouts are very different for children than for, for grown-ups, right? I mean, for kids, it's like really exciting. Mom and dad are lighting fires in the house, and like we have candles, and it's kind of an exciting thing. But for grown-ups, blackouts are really annoying. And what happens is after a while, if the blackout lasts more than an hour or so, you get really used to being in the dark. It becomes your new normal. And then all of a sudden, at the weirdest moment, all the lights and appliances come back on. It's kind of jarring, isn't it? It's as if you got, you, you're like, oh, the lights are out. And you're all upset. You can't be on the internet. The TV doesn't work. You stumble in the dark until you find your flashlight. And then your, your wife yells at you because you didn't put new batteries in the flashlight. <clears throat> And then you yell at her because she threw out the lighter and the matches. And so you go through all of that, right? And then after a while, you acclimate to the darkness. You make the most of it. You're sitting around telling stories. And then the lights come back. And the very thing which you missed suddenly jars you a little bit. And I think that's very much the picture of when Jesus was born. Was that the human race was living in darkness. And had been doing so for so long they kind of got used to the blackout. And so, in John, God delivers a verdict. Do you know what a verdict is? It's rooted in a French word that literally means the telling of the truth. 
What is the verdict in a court case? It is when after everybody has called their witnesses, has stood on the stand and, and basically given their version, their side of things, someone with authority says, okay, I've heard everything. Now let me tell you how it really went down. This is going to be the official version of the truth, the binding version. This is the only version that carries consequences. Everybody is given their side of the story, but now here comes the hammer, here comes the real truth. And you all know what I'm talking about, because each one of us has our own version of our life story. And you know the truth is, when you listen to some people tell their version, it's hard to listen to, because the lying, the deception, the wackiness of it all, is so easy to spot in others. Have you ever had that experience? Somebody close to you is kind of giving you the whole tale, the tape. This is how my life's going. This is what's happening. And the whole time you're going, oh my gosh, you are so deluded. It's as if somebody drugged you. You can't see what's right in front of your face. Your version has no bearing on the truth. I was standing right next to you through half of those things and your side of it could not be further from the truth. What has happened to you? And so that's what God is doing, is he's saying, everybody has their own side of things. But here I come now to give the verdict. This is the only version of things that matters, that carries consequence. And here's the verdict. Light has come into the world. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. The world was in a blackout, and then the lights came on, but not everybody was happy about that, because some people really made the most of that blackout. In fact, they've grown so fond of the dark that the light was an unwelcome intrusion, whereas before, with no light, their eyes grew used to dimness. Now, suddenly, they have to look at everything, and it is not an easy thing to go from ignoring the truth to having it shining, glaring, bright in your face. And the verdict which God delivers about so much of humanity is that real lights came on and people scurried into the darkness. Tell me, what other creature scurries into the dark crevices when the lights come on? What? Yeah, cockroach. I don't know if there's some spiritual analogy in that, but... There's a sense in which lights come on and we don't like it. It's not comfortable and so we scurry because the darkness, while it doesn't show everything, is somehow comfortable in what it covers and includes. Now think about what God's really saying here. That light entered the human story and many people chose the dark instead. You know, that's just another way of saying this. That light came into the world through Jesus, and many people preferred the way the world was before Jesus. Where there was no Savior, there was nobody who would tell us one thing is right and another is wrong. Do you know how many people in our world today would very much prefer to define for themselves what right and wrong are? And I totally understand why the heart would want that. You know, when I find $20 on the floor of the Walmart, I hate being a Christian. I just hate it because, and you know, the flesh in me is going, they're just going to keep it anyway. It might as well be me. 
I should give it to the offering at church. I just want, it's so hard to live in the light. I so badly wish that when it suited me, I could lie. I could live in denial of the truth. One of my friends who I just met at, at the, that island in Canada told me she had these delicious snacks. And then the border agent asked, are you bringing in any nuts or meats or anything like that? And she said, oh, she was so looking forward to eating these things on the island, but she could not lie on the way to a Christian leadership conference. And so she said, well, it probably doesn't matter, but yeah, I, I have this delicious bag of nuts. And the agent took them and said, you can't have these right now. It's the wrong time of year. We can't let this in. And he took it from her and he threw it in the garbage. And she said, it was just a bag of nuts. But it's funny the things that make you wish you never knew the truth. That you could just make up the rules as you go. That you could feel good about bad. That somehow you could convince yourself and everyone else that what I'm doing is okay. Because it feels okay to me. God's verdict is, that's really just not the way it works. Light and darkness are not things that we choose to define for ourselves. They exist in the real, real universe. And they are defined by God. And there is a right. And there is a wrong. And there is a position I have with God depending on where I land on that question. I think there are people, even in this room right now, and I'm not just talking about the rest of you, I go through seasons of this where what I long for in my heart is that life of freedom I knew before Jesus mucked things up for me. We long for the dark sometimes because the dark hides things we don't want to see. And what God says is, this is the verdict. That if that is your position on it, then you already stand condemned because that light was not just meant to expose you, but to save you. I don't know if that's what you've done in your life. If you're trying to create a reality where you know that Jesus exists, but you are working very hard to keep him safely at the periphery of your life. And if you're doing that, then what I'm saying right now is probably really ticking you off. That maybe you feel like I'm just talking to you. I'm pretending to preach to the whole church, but I'm, I've got this bone to pick with just you. That's not the case at all. I think all of us go through a time like that. Where we're tempted to push God to the side and live the old way. And God says, the verdict is this. If that is your choice then there are consequences to the decision you've made about light and dark. Now, let me ask you something. Why would a person, after the lights have come on, switch the light off again? Why would anyone prefer darkness over light? And that's really the question I wrestled the most with this week, and it's how I want to wrap up this sermon. I really wrestled with why would anybody want the dark and not the light. I mean, haven't you ever just told somebody over a cup of coffee, 
Can I just tell you the truth? It's not going to be easy to hear, but I'm telling you because you really need to. I see what you're doing. It's destroying you. I love you. I want to just tell you the truth. Have you ever been in that place? And as you're sharing with that person, you could see their face contorting. They're not happy at all with what you're saying. And they say, all right, fine. You're entitled to your own opinion. Thanks for saying all that, but I just don't agree with you. And they leave and you know you've lost that person. That with all the courage you could muster, you try to bring some light into their life of darkness. And they said, thanks, but you know what? I don't like this. I'd rather go back to defining it for myself. And you walked away discouraged, feeling like you had just lost that person's heart. And you wonder, why would someone do that? When you're telling them the truth to help them, to give them light so they don't stumble in the dark, why would they retreat back? I think I mean, there's a lot of things that came to my mind, um, but I'm, I'm decided that instead of giving an 18-point sermon, I'm just going to close with this one thing that I really felt God was showing me. I think that the reason people choose the darkness over the light is driven by a big misunderstanding about Jesus Christ and what he stands for. I think a lot of people have a distorted picture of Jesus. And I think partly the reason they get that distorted picture is because of the church. Right? Can we just admit that the church does not always perfectly represent Jesus and his character? And do you know why that's the case? Because you and I don't always perfectly reflect his character. Did you raise your hand if you've ever had a bad day where you just really did not act Christianly at all? Keep your hands up if that bad day was this past week. Yeah, I, I had one day, It was bizarre. After the most amazing spiritual high, the travel day coming back, was one of the foulest moral days in the world for me. I wrestled all day with anger issues. I could not believe what was happening in me. And that's why I don't really trust the church to be the only definer of the picture of who Jesus is. I think a lot of people, when someone is doing poorly, just lash out, and all we do is remind them how badly they're doing. It's like that person. Remember when you, you guys ever have a, a big zit at the worst possible place on the worst possible occasion? That was every week for me growing up in high school. Okay, it just changed places, but the torture would never end. And there were always people who would go, dude, you got like a really big zit on your nose. <laughs> what do they expect me to say? Oh my gosh, I don't have a mirror anywhere in my house. Thanks for telling me and for highlighting it in front of everyone else, just drawing all the attention to the one thing I don't want to be noticeable. Thanks, man. I, I try to cover it in clearasil or something, but you saw past the ruse. You exposed it. Do you know that's the role some of us play? Is somebody is a mess, and we believe that our job is to go, hey, do you know that um, you have garbage all over you? Do you know that you smell really bad? Your soul stinks. What is that? Is that sin? Oh, God. Please go to church, take a, a shower or something. You know what I've learned about people? That all but the most sociopathic, crazy people know when they're screwed up. You don't have to tell people who are messed up that they're messed up. Everybody knows. You know why? Because God designed the soul to know when it's broken. 
God designed the human heart to know when something is off. And that's not to say that you shouldn't challenge people or rebuke in love. There is a time and a place for that. But I think most people believe that the only ministry we have to the morally struggling is to keep pointing out the moral struggle. Is that the only answer God has equipped His church with? I remember this woman that I worked with, and she had spent herself into almost complete financial ruin. She was one of those people who would go to Costco just because and walk out with $600 worth of stuff she didn't know she previously needed. She would go on vacation four times a year. Anything her children wanted, she would buy. They would go to the mall as family outings with no particular mission other than, do you see something that will make you happy? Let's get it. She was on the mindless upgrade track, and on and on it goes. Every time her car lost a new car smell, a new one would be right there in the driveway. And she, she shared with me because <clears throat> I had a position one notch lower than her in the corporate ladder. I said, either you're doing something genius, or I'm really bad with money, or you're robbing banks after work. What are you doing? And here's what she confided to me. She goes, Dave, you're like a priest or something, right? Something like that, I guess. She goes, I need to make a confession. So we sat in her office, and it became a confessional. And here's what she said. Even when I'm having fun, even as I'm getting off that plane in Cabo San Lucas, and I'm checking into the, and I'm looking around the hotel lobby, and you know that feeling of giddiness, that excitement, when you have something new and shiny, and it's just beginning? She said, even in the midst of the best moment, there's this nauseating feeling in the bottom of my gut that I've never really been able to shut off completely. And it is the most annoying thing that every time I'm happy, I'm also about to throw up. Because I know the bills are coming, and I can't afford this, but I still want it and I can't stop wanting it. I don't know what to do about it. But she said, I am trapped in this horrible cycle where I know that eventually it's going to crash. You can't keep spending like this forever. They're going to want their money back sooner or later. And I know that day's coming and it just creates this horrible tension deep inside. What is that? Why can't I shake it? I was amazed she couldn't connect the dots. She actually asked as a genuine, what is that feeling? Why can't I suppress it? I try to up it. Last year I went to Cabo. This year I went, but I got a nicer suite. And I was happier, but I felt even more nauseated. And what she didn't realize was the human soul is designed with built-in monitoring systems to tell you, sometimes through the most undefined and ambiguous nausea, that this is not what you were meant for. That even though with your eloquent words you can make an argument for why it's right, your soul knows it's not. And you can try, and it says in Romans 1, in fact, that that's what a lot of people did. It says that they suppressed the truth so that they can keep on living the way they wanted. What does that tell you when Paul says of the Romans, they suppress the truth, that the truth is... in it's embedded in us. It wants to come surging out. And so you got to turn up the noise, turn up the volume, turn up the stimuli so that you never have to be quiet and still long enough to really think about it. But eventually it's going to come gushing up out of you. 
And I think the reason we prefer the dark as long as possible is because what we think is that Jesus is just like everyone else, that his entire function is to amplify my guilt, to point out like some kind of a booster signal. Hey, if you thought you felt bad at the church, wait till an all-knowing God gets in front of you. Then you'll know what bad really is. Almost like when your mom goes, you wait till your dad gets home. You're like, gulp. Whereas in, in my case, I'm the softy, so the kids are like, awesome, wait till dad gets home. You know, he'll buy his ice cream. But, you know, like when you normally say that, it's scary. And I think that's the distorted picture that so many people carry of Jesus, is that Jesus is just like the worst version of the church times a hundred. That I'm already feeling defeated, frustrated, stuck. I hate myself. Even though I act like I like what I'm doing, the truth is I disgust myself. I look in the mirror and I want to throw up. Have you ever felt that? You just look in the mirror, you just want to punch it in the face because you're so sick of the person you are. The weakness, the inability to control yourself. The fact that everything you do is destructive and yet you can't stop. You want to, but the truth is you actually can't. You've proven that again and again. And we think all that Jesus is going to do is make it clearer, make it more pronounced. That's why there's such power in John three sixteen and 17. Because in the midst of a world steeped in darkness that likes the shadow more than the light, Jesus Christ presents a startling and unexpected picture of the heart of God. Because what these two verses now give us in response to the verdict given earlier is that everything God does is motivated by love. That his every thought for you all the time begins with love. And because he loved you, He's not content to let you perish. But he wants you to experience life. That slow death you are dying in increments. One little cut at a time. He doesn't want that for you. He wants you to experience what life was always supposed to be. And he knew that you could not claw your way to that life by yourself. And so it says... That he was willing that his own son should give up his life so that you could have what you could not get for yourself. And in case you didn't get the message from verse 16, verse 17 tells us that he did not come here to condemn us, but to save us. Do you know how important that is for us to hear in the church? There is no biblical ministry of condemnation. No one will come to Christ by having their noses ground in it. Only the Holy Spirit can lead us to real repentance. And what Romans teaches us is it is the kindness of God not his wrath that drives us to repentance. True remorse, true ownership of our sin 
There is no biblical ministry of condemnation. God did not send his son to condemn us, but to save us. And if you have a distorted picture of Jesus, thinking that the only thing he wants to do is condemn you, then you will stay and lurk in the shadows forever. Believing wrongly that Jesus is not safe when he is the only safe place for you. What is not safe is the darkness in which you've chosen to linger. It is killing you, and you may think, bring it on. I'm okay with that. But the consequences are not just for a few years. They are eternal. Why, if just after one step you could live in the light, would you lurk in the shadows of darkness? You'd only do it if you didn't realize who this light is and what he wants for you. I'm going to bring it to a close, but I got to tell you, lately, it's been hard to sleep. I know Jeannie is as well. I and many other leaders, we are having some long nights, pounding the floor, beating our chests, praying for many of you. It's hard to get that deep rest because you're so close to light somehow you decide to stay in the shadow. And that's really hard to take when you love somebody and that's a choice they keep making. We're not going to stop praying for you. We're going to fight hard for God to win the day in your life. But I'm going to challenge you from this pulpit this morning. Don't reject a Jesus who's not real. Don't set Jesus up to be a condemner and then avoid him altogether. Jesus is the last person who will condemn you. He is the safest place to run. And would you just for a moment drop the BS? Just get honest. Stop defending what you're doing, pretending that you are okay with it, that's what you really want. You would not have that gut feeling deep in your soul that trouble, if it were so. Something is not right with you. And if that's speaking to you, you've got to come into the light. What you will find there is welcome and freedom and redemption. And if that's something you want to know and you want to do, but you're not sure how to get there, then I'm going to encourage you to find a pastor or a leader at this church. Invest $5, buy him a nice coffee. Say, can you just talk me and pray me through this big step from darkness into light? We would love to do that with you. On the surface... This is a beautiful church. Don't worry, it's not, I'm not setting you up to crush your spirit. I mean, whenever I travel and I talk about Harvest, I'm always so proud to talk about our church. But right now, even in this place, there are some people who are dying inside. I'm going to ask you to join with me in praying for those 
who are in the grips of this dark and who wants to consume everything, rob them of their joy. That dark will take everything good, leave you nothing, and won't even apologize as it slams the door in your face. There's nothing for you there. Just join with me as we pray, especially for those who are in the grips of this. God, we don't believe that you formed Harvest Community Church so that we would have something to do on Sundays. We believe that you formed this church so that through our community of faith, people lost in darkness would walk into the light. People who have no power would find the power of God to transform and heal. People who have chosen the road that leads to death would be shown the gate and the narrow road that leads to life. Lord, we believe that that's why we exist as a church. And so this morning, we are asking you to descend upon this room and fill this room. Words have been spoken. Logic has been given and applied. Truth has been told. But now, Lord, we need your power. And I pray, holy God, that you would now move through this room in the name of Jesus and start to set captives free. Even those who walked in this morning in total denial that they were in captivity. Set them free. The enemy has blinded their eyes. Turn on the lights. Show them, God. We wish so much that we could just make them see, but we can't. God, come among us right now and open the eyes of our hearts. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.